What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome once again, everyone, to a Baseball America podcast. John Manuel here. Jim Callis there in Chicago. Another Skype uh, podcast here on BaseballAmerica.com and downloadable on iTunes. So we thank you for the download. And, Jim, uh, some breaking news today and uh, so much going on, obviously, at Baseball America with our league top 20s, uh, which are also in full swing. Uh, Every minor league top 20, we break it down and then we chat about it and we uh, have uh, a billion scouting reports. And uh, there's a whole lot of information going on, Jim, uh, this time of year at Baseball America. But I guess the biggest news that did come down today was the Pedro Alvarez contract Alvarez signs again with the Pittsburgh Pirates he initially agreed to a deal on August 15th just before the deadline never signed the contract now word comes that he has actually signed a contract I actually just got a text message that he's on the plane uh, to Pittsburgh so it appears Jim that the Pedro Alvarez saga is over and that he gets a little bit more money uh in a way, than he initially signed for, although less in terms of present value. It really seems like right now, Pedro Alvarez, the Pirates, Scott Boris, I guess we want to have a quickie winners and losers, Jim, in the Pedro Alvarez uh, affair. Who do you think is the biggest winner in all this? I don't think there really is a winner, John, and, and I'm going to quibble with you for one second. I, I don't think quibble. Pedro signed until August 16th initially. Yeah, so, you're, uh, you're probably right. He probably, he probably didn't just, just eating. Right. And uh, the other thing is, uh, you, would it shock any of us if – I mean, I think they are going to get this done, but would it shock any of us if something happened? I don't, I don't think he's actually signed a contract yet. So until uh, <laughs> right we see uh, ink on the paper, uh, I'll, believe it, I'll believe that when I see it. But I don't think anybody really wins here. Uh, you know, I, I don't think – you know, Pedro Alvarez, instead of getting his bonus payable over a calendar year, it'll get payable over a four-year period. He's got some made, you know, minor league salaries – you know, guaranteed that the, the I guess the total value of his deal is now six point three five five million guaranteed, which I guess is valued with the way the bonus is spread at five point seven million. You now, although realistically, the, the deals are going to wind up being virtually the same because he's going he was going to make the majors quickly anyway and catch in on that. He'll get some licensing money, but but I don't think anybody wins. I, I don't think Peter Alvarez. You know, I think his uh, standing with Pirates fans has hurt a little bit. Although I think in the long run, it really comes down to how well you play. And if Pedro Alvarez is as good as we think he is and the Pirates think he is and Scott Boris thinks he is, then none of the Pirates fans are really going to care about this a year from now. Uh, I don't think you know Boris necessarily looks great. It's not like he got a bunch more money and everybody's blaming him for this. And, and I don't think the Pirates look good. And you know, I, I think the people who come out looking the worst, actually, John, and I, I, I'd be interested in your take. I, I think the Pirates look the worst in this because – 
the Pirates, you know, wound up renegotiating the deal, which Coonley, Frank Coonley bombastically said they would not do initially and repeatedly throughout this process, and they did that. And, and my sense is is that MLB felt well, – I, I don't think there's any question MLB was going to lose the grievance right. because they can't unilaterally change the rules. Now, I don't think there was going to be a significant remedy that was going to benefit Pedro Alvarez, but I think I, baseball I, just did not want to run the risk. Yeah, neither of us thought that he was going to be declared a free agent. Man, that's fair to say. Uh, it didn't really seem like it would make sense that that would not be the proper remedy for this – uh, like you said, unilateral uh, extension of the rules because uh, it just didn't seem like that that was the punishment that did not fit the the crime. Uh, but the, I think you're right. I agree with you as who, who the biggest who who looks the worst here to me it specifically actually is Frank Coonley because he's the big bad guy from MLB who came to take over a team and seemed like he really kind of threw down the gauntlet to Scott Boris. And this was really uh, two lawyers, Boris and Coonley kind of going at it to see who could out-litigate the other, and it really seems like the guy who backed down is Frank Coonley. So, um, because he did renegotiate the contract, which he said he would not do. But to me, the other party that comes out looking bad in this is Major League Baseball, Jim, because how can you have an August 15th midnight deadline and then allow this contract to be renegotiated five weeks later? I really... Explain that to me. I don't. I don't get that one. That's the one that, to me... It uh, doesn't look good. It looks like MLB decided to change the rules again just to make sure that the unthinkable didn't happen and that Pedro Alvarez could maybe get declared a free agent because they really don't want that to happen. No, I don't understand it either. I mean, last year, going back a year, I guess Julio Bourbon signed after the deadline, although from what the Rangers and Boris say, the deal was agreed to before. There was some problem with the reporting process, and so it got reported late. I don't quite understand that. In that case, the union and MLB agreed. You know, MLB called the union and said, hey, do you have a problem with this? The union said, all was good. This year, MLB, you know, from the best as anybody can tell, extended the deadline without consulting with the union, which seems very, very fishy to me. Yes. Um, that they would do that, especially with the precedent being set. Um, I, I find that very fee. But but the bottom line to me is, uh, you, you know, if you have a deadline, well, what's the point of having a deadline? If you if unilaterally, if a guy's going to sign after the deadline, which Pedro Alvarez, which Boris maintains that Pedro Alvarez did, and then you allow the sides to negotiate later, I, I don't understand what's the point of having a deadline. I, mean, I we don't know all the details yet. My guess is. is you know, I mean, this would be have to be the way it worked out. You know, this last renegotiation is that MLB and the union agreed to give extra window. But if I'm another agent, I'm wondering, well, you know, why can't I have that window? If I'm say to throw out a a negotiation that went sour, if I'm the Washington Nationals and I'm the Hendricks brothers, part of me might be wondering, hey, you know, why not let us get back together and see if we can work out the deal? I I, I think the only way Pedro was going to be agent was if Boris and the union were able to prove that there was some kind of planned conspiracy between the Pirates and MLB, you know, who I used to work for, to extend the deadline and, and give uh, the Pirates what George Costanza would call extra hand. Did such a conspiracy exist? We don't know. Could it have existed? Sure, I find very fishy some of the stuff that went on very fishy, but I don't think it was provable. So I, I don't think I don't think anything was going to come out of it that was going to make a major remedy for Pedro. There's also the J.D. Drew precedent where J.D. Drew filed a grievance where he tried to play in a 
you know, get a client, played in an independent league and wanted to say that that did not allow him to, to you know, they didn't have to re-enter the draft. And MLB basically said, look, or I'm sorry, the arbitrator back then said, look, you know, you might have a point, but I can't run J.D. Drew because he's not a member of the union. And I think that was going to be the same case with Pedro Alvarez, that even if they found some major wrongdoing, I don't think the arbitrator had the the uh, jurisdiction to really rule on Pedro Alvarez specifically. I think he would have had to rule on the process as a whole, and you could have had all kinds of contracts being called into question. And so I think this is just a case where MLB wanted to go away. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that there are a couple of big winners here. Number one is the Kansas City Royals. They breathe a nice sigh of relief that this won't happen because I think if Pedro Alvarez somehow had declared a free agent, I think Eric Hosmer would have been as well, and the Royals would have been really – ensnared in this, mostly thanks to Frank Cooley. It might have happened anyway, but uh, thanks to Frank Cooley bringing uh, Eric Hosmer into it uh, and the Royals into it, that, that would have been really unfortunate if the Royals and Hosmer and Boris had all agreed to this contract. That's a you know, very good contract for Eric Hosmer. Let's think about it. As a high school first baseman, I know he has other tools. I know he can throw, all these kind of things, but here's a high school first baseman basically getting the same amount of money as a switch-hitting college catcher did last year in Matt Wieters or a college catcher who does everything but switch hit in Buster Posey, who got 6.2 this year. And I thought Eric Hosmer did very, very well for himself, and he probably would have gotten more as a free agent. Uh, so I think the Royals really had to be uh, a little nervous, I think, about that. If, and then the other winner to me in this uh, is Scott Boris. I think Scott Boris, the public perception is Scott Boris went to battle with this major league team, and the Boris Corporation gets a win out of it in that, they didn't have to have the same rules apply to them as they apply to everyone else, and they get to throw a number out there in 6.355, which I know the present value is lower, but that number, 6.355, is larger than Buster Posey's number. So the Boris Corporation gets to say they had a contract that was the largest contract agreed to in the 2008 draft class, not CAA, not Buster Posey, and you just can't tell me that this pissing match between agents wasn't a part of this, because I think it was. I don't think... Scott Boris filed. There was no grievance last year over Julio Borbone being late. There was nothing this year about Hosmer basically being late, if, if that was, one was indeed late. This came about, in my opinion, purely because uh, Pedro Alvarez got less than Scott Boris thought he would and because Pedro Alvarez got less than Buster Posey. If he had not gotten less than Buster Posey, I don't think we would have had this whole rigmarole the last, couple, the last month or so. And I have uh, no way of uh, – you're not going to convince me of any difference. I really just don't believe we would have had a grievance or had any of this happen if not for the fact that Buster Posey got more money than Pedro Alvarez, which, if you ask me, he deserves more because he's a catcher. So it positions scarcity. I buy that argument. So uh, to me, those are the winners, and I think uh, you know the, the Royals are kind of a, a winner in absentia almost. They didn't have anything to do with it, but thank goodness for them they didn't lose uh, an elite talent. And I think the Boris Corporation wins just because, again, Scott Boris uh, looks like he's the guy who can take on Major League Baseball and win, and MLB basically gives. Uh, I don't think he would have gotten Pedro Alvarez declared a free agent, but just the threat, just that litigation, uh, just this grievance process, which of course wasn't about Pedro, uh, to me makes the Boris Corporation come off uh, looking pretty good and with a stronger uh, hand for recruiting future players, which I don't think their hand was weak otherwise, Jim, but it's, it's a little bit stronger now. Um, I'm going to agree with you on one end and disagree with you a little bit. I, on, getting on Hosmer briefly, I think you're exactly right. I think the Royals are breathing a huge sigh of relief. I mean, after all, they did give Hosmer the highest upfront bonus for any high school player in draft history. That's amazing. And, and I thought it was 
really tacky Frank Cunnally to bring Hosmer into this. Uh, you Very know, Cunnally tried to make it personal with Boris, and I think you're right. Boris got Frank Cunnally to back down, you know, put the dog in the corner, and, and he's whimpering over there a little bit, and he got them to renegotiate, which is what Scott went along. I, I don't think this was about getting more than $6.2 million. I think in the end, Scott knew he wasn't going to get the 8.5 or $9.5 million that he fully believes Pedro Alvarez is worth. I think Scott, I think, was holding out hope, you know, that they'd renegotiate and that he'd get that, and he didn't. I think at the same time, Scott, you know, took what he could get, which is, you know, to get that number that higher than Posey, if that was the best he could do. You know, I don't think the Pirates were going to put, you know, eight and a half or nine and a half million on top of that. But I really think the point of the grievance was two point, twofold. One, that Scott felt his negotiating ability had been really compromised, do uh, which really? I don't no, necessarily do really? agree with. I don't buy that for a second. I do. I do. I, I do. I, I think it was twofold. I think he his, felt his client was in the room with him. John, <laughs> John, I'm not saying he didn't negotiate for him. I'm just saying he felt that the way that the, the deadline was extended prevented Pedro Alvarez from having a shot to get eight and a half for nine and a half. I think he necessarily would have gotten it. I'm just telling you what Scott has said. I, Scott I know, said that. And I know what he said. I, I talked to him too. I'm trying to make my two points. Make okay, I make my two points. Go ahead. Okay, I think that was part of it. And two, I think. I think the union not want a scenario where this happened again, and I think the union did not think they were going to gauge a remedy, but they were going to have Major League Baseball made it very clear to Major League Baseball by the arbitrator. I think this would have come out that Major League Baseball cannot unilaterally extend the deadline, and I think the union, that was the second point, which wasn't Pedro-specific, but was to prevent a team in MLB from doing this in the future. Well, I agree. I definitely agree with that second point. And here's, I think that's the biggest crux of the matter is that once again, and I think we should wrap on this point, Jim, is that MLB just doesn't get it with its own draft. It changes the rules. It changes them unilaterally. It changes them haphazardly. And every time it does this through history, it, it leaves itself vulnerable to being to, to that those facts being played out and teams having to spend more money and MLB until MLB actually goes over the draft, codifies it, puts some rules that make sense together, and bargains this collectively with the with the players association as a CBA. We're going to keep having this kind of stupidity come up with a draft every couple of years, whether it's something as outrageous as what happened in 1996 or the Matt Harrington thing or whatever. I mean, I know that was an MLB, but you're going to keep having these draft conflagrations, the J.D. Drew thing like you talked about, uh, this negotiation, this grievance. It keeps happening because MLB still approaches the draft in a piecemeal situation, a piecemeal fashion, instead of as an industry, how do we want the draft to work? How can the draft work? To, the, to try to incorporate the best interests of the players and the clubs, and let's face it, more the clubs than the players. But uh, they haven't figured that out yet, Jim. In 40-some in years, 43 years of drafts, they still haven't figured it out. And uh, until they do, uh, with this de facto slotting system that only you know four clubs fa- followed this year, we're just going to keep on having these uh, si- this kind of silly situation come up in every draft, I think. I-, I think that's the bottom line is this is another example of how MLB not paying full attention to the draft keeps it from really working the way it's supposed to work. Well, yeah, and I think you're right. I think we are headed. I, I think the-, the-, the thing that's going to be different with the next NBA that has never been the case before is that there's always – there's been talk past about how the changes need to be made to the draft draft, yada, 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 and then it kind of negotiates the, CDA, the CBA and, and the draft becomes a very low priority. I think now the draft is going to be one of the highest priorities in the new CBA. 
the union been philosophically opposed to any kind of mandated slotting. Uh, you know, I, you know, because I think on the same thing there, they look as on one level, we're not going to accept any talk of a salary cap at the major league level, and so we don't want to cap. The, you know, it looks bad if we say, okay, you can cap the draftees. But I think it, it's up to baseball come up with a creative way to say, look, we'll give you this bone, and in return, you give us slotting, and we have to have slotting, and we're going to make it a uh, a must-have and sell it that way. So I think that's where we're headed in that regard. And you know, the interesting thing is, did MLB screw up and get their? They didn't even get their hand slapped because the grievance got reduced. I know. And again, I mean, Scott tells you, you know, Scott Boris will tell you his point of view. I think Scott's point that he made was that MLB and the Pirates are very smart and they know what the case law is in all this and they know the J.D. Drew precedent and that part of the reason that Scott thought that they went ahead and, and did what Scott thought was you know a, a gross conspiracy was that they felt they could get away with it based on the case law so I'd, I you know, I, I think they like I said well we, we would have seen what would happen to come out but I, I don't think they necessarily screwed this one up uh, so much as, as uh, you know they didn't want to go all the way down there, they you know they felt like there was nothing bad that was going to necessarily happen to them. Yeah, I think you're right. I think MLB realized we can fudge the rules a little bit here, and this guy's not going to be declared a free agent. But once it got to the grievance point, I guess both sides, all sides, really realized let's not risk it going forward. So I am glad that's behind us. I'm uh, surprised that Pedro Alvarez is behind us, but it is behind us. Uh, so now he can become an actual prospect. And speaking of, uh, I don't mean a draft prospect, I mean a minor league prospect. And that's what we're kind of knee-deep in right now, Jim. So we'll try to wrap up the podcast talking a little bit about our top 20 prospects. You and I either edit every list or consult on every list. I think you edit every single list. I at least consult on them all if I don't, uh, if I don't edit every single list. Uh, we've gone over a lot of the short season ones and the rookie level ones so far. Uh, you and I did full season leagues. You do the Midwest League every year. I do the Eastern League. First thing I'll say is it is nice to only do one league and not two, as you and I used to always try to do. Now we have our young guys without kids like Matt Eddy and Ben Battler who do two leagues. And uh, I, I guess you've done the Midwest League from year to year. Uh, I'm not sure how many years in a row you've done it now, maybe eight or nine. Uh, I'm yeah, I think nine minutes per year. I'm wondering what the, uh, what the biggest challenge is every year doing a league at that level and how you try to, uh, you know, how, how tough it is assessing a league that's A, that big, B, uh, is that where the offense is so depressed thanks to the weather and some of the ballparks and that kind of thing, and see how you measure performance uh, in that environment. Maybe start with a we'll, – we'll try to chop that up into small bits. How much harder is it to do a league at the Midwest League that seems like it is a fairly large league and where it's, it's hard for all the managers to see? Uh, uh, yeah, and I, I'm guessing that most scouts don't do the whole league. They probably do pieces of the league, right? Yeah, that's exactly what the hardest problem is with any of the big leagues. And you, know, you got two low class A leagues, Midwest and the Sally League, with thirty teams. And you know, the Midwest League is a two division setup. You know, eight teams in one, six teams in the other. And if you play, you play teams out of your division. You typically play them in two four game series, and that's it. And so a lot of times, if the manager, you know, you might have their division in April and never see the team again. So the manager doesn't recall those players as well. You know, we're trying to put together the list in August and September. Um, the Midwest League, you know, the weather's horrible early in the season. So, I mean, if you saw, well, let's say, for instance, you saw Burlington play only in April, you know, when it's probably 45 degrees and Mike Moustakis is playing, you know, below average shortstop and struggling to get his bat warmed up, 
you didn't see Mike Moustakis, who led the league in home runs. So that's, you know, that's the difficult part from the logistics. And as you said, I mean, the scouts, uh, you know, last year I had a scout who saw the whole league. This year he only saw half the league. But for the most part, you know, the scouts I talked to might see three or four teams. And if they're – it's like when they're a little bit less organized. If these scouts are real organized and they have to cover three teams, they'll see the three teams – each other. I, I like it more when it's a guy with three teams and he might run into a couple other teams against those clubs. But uh, So you just want him having to talk to more people because very few people saw the league as a whole. And it, it might be a little bit harder than some of the other leagues asking guys to compare one player to another. Because, you know, for instance, in the Midwest League with the pitchers this year, with Neftali Feliz and Jared Parker being in different divisions, you know, there are very few people who, who necessarily got a real good look at both of those guys when you ask them who's better. Yeah, and then the Eastern League, I've done the Eastern League now for a couple of years. I don't do it every single year. I seem to float around a little bit more than, than most people here do on what assignments I do. But the Eastern League, you will find some scouts who do the whole league, but um, it's a 12-team league, and in some league, sometimes you find guys who do maybe the northeastern part of it or some guys who do four teams. Uh, it's a little more piecemeal this year than I found it to be last year. I found a couple scouts who'd seen the entire league, and that was, uh, that was a gold mine. That was gold, Jerry. Uh, I, had to, I had to love that. But uh, the best part to me about the Eastern League is uh, it's double A, so the performance really can tell you something. Uh, I still think it doesn't tell you the whole uh, story, uh, but the higher up you go, the more performance matters. So uh, a guy like a Greg Golson, who I think is a player that uh, you and I have talked a lot about over the years uh, out of Texas high school, so you covered him at a, in a draft in 2004, and uh, we both know the scout that signed him, uh, Steve Cohenwell, and uh, you know, back from when he worked uh, for USA Baseball. And, you know, you really – I, I want to believe in Greg Golson. I want Greg Golson to succeed because he sounds like a great kid and all that. But uh, his hit tool is his weakest tool, and that's just a terrible profile. I mean, it's just it's the worst one to have. Uh, he's number 20 on my Eastern League list for a little teaser, but he has the best tools in that league, and that includes Matt Weeders, to be quite frank. Uh, this guy's 60s are better in four tools. It's just the most important tool, the hit tool. That's uh, not a 60, uh, but it's at least 60 power. It's an 80 run. It's probably a 70 defense and a 65, uh, maybe better than that, throwing arm. Uh, this guy is a guy who I think 10, 15, 20 years ago, we would have ranked Greg Golson number one in this league. Or, uh, and he's kind of like a Ruben Rivera kind of player. He's a true potential five-tool guy if he ever hits. But that if gets bigger, the, the, further, the higher and higher up he goes in the minor leagues. And the less, you know, he still isn't hitting for consistent average. He still strikes out about 100 times more than he, than he walks in a season. Um, he's in the major leagues now with the, with the Phillies down the stretch for the final couple weeks. Not that that really means anything. He's basically a pinch runner and defensive replacement. But uh, Greg Golson's a fascinating guy. To me, Jim, that a guy like that would rank higher in the Midwest League with that statistical profile and that tools pro- profile than he does in the Eastern League because the, the higher up you go, the more you have to perform. I think you're right. I mean, I think... You're going back to, you know, two, two and a half, you know, two, three decades ago when Bill James was looking at minor league stuff and Bill felt like stats and performance were trustworthy at double A and up and not so much below. So when you're in the Midwest League, you know, I think you'd have most teams tell you that too, that, that, that you know, when a guy gets to double A, they, you know, how he performs is going to determine, you know, the opportunities that unfold after that. In the Midwest League, you're getting a lot of 19-year-old kids out of high school the year before. It's their first full season. Um, it's the toughest, toughest hitters league in the minors anywhere. You know, Mike Moustakis hit 22 homers this year, which doesn't seem like a whole lot, but 
you know, his first teenager to hit 22, you know, 22 or more homers in the league since Prince Fielder a few years back. I mean, it's just, it's not a home run league. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of similar to, to me doing the Cape Cod League where the numbers are way down too. And, I mean, you do look at numbers to some extent. I mean, you know, comparing guys, you know, but you put a lot less emphasis on them than you do how they get things done. I mean, for instance, and the guy's a decent prospect, but, you know, the Midwest League actually was the home to the guy who led the minor league in strike at minor leagues and strikeouts this year who you and I know is David Bromberg who's in the twins system I bet the average fan doesn't realize even the the average baseball America fan probably doesn't realize that David Bromberg was your your minor league leader in strikeouts and you know if you were just to go on the number you get all jumping up and down about all the whiffs he had and you know Bromberg's got a good you know good breaking ball you know average fastball you know commands it well he's kind of maxed out physically and, you know, basically in low class A, you know, one of the things that, that's been true year in and year out is if you could command a, a breaking ball, even if it's a mediocre breaking ball, let alone a good one, you're going to have success. And if you could command a good breaking ball like Bromberg can, you're going to tear up the league. But a lot of times those guys who tear up the league don't necessarily do it at higher levels. And I think I think I had I, Jonathan Kibler at West Michigan, I'm pretty sure, now, don't have the stats in front. He finished second in the minor league ERA race behind Madison Bumgarner of the Giants, who is yeah. an elite prospect. Now he had an amazing year. And uh, Kibler. Yeah, and Kibler's more of a kind of finesse guy. You know, he's an older guy come out of Michigan State. You know, wasn't a big time prospect. And West Michigan is, you know, probably the best pitchers park in the best pitchers league. And again, if you were just looking on numbers, you might think that Kibler, you know, is a potential front line pitcher. And he's more of a guy who's kind of a, a chance prospect as he goes up the line. Yeah, he did have a dominant season. There's no doubt about that. And uh, it's hard it's hard to put up numbers like he put up uh, no matter where you play. But uh, I do think uh, we'll, we'll both obviously have chats about our, our leagues when those leagues are posted. We're going to have another podcast. Uh, I think we're going to have a Matt Eddy and Ben Badler podcast. At least that's the plan to talk about uh, doing four leagues between the two of those guys and, and what that was like. And if you haven't, already checked it out at BaseballAmerica.com. Uh, Matt Eddy's uh, Appalachian League Top 20 and chat are actually free. Uh, they're not subscriber only. They're free. Uh, it's a nice teaser uh, for those of you who listen but maybe aren't subscribers. And I would really encourage you to check that out because Matt, A, he loves the Appalachian League. Uh, he has <laughs> uh, amazing passion for the Appy League. Uh, second of all, he's about as thorough as anybody who works here as far as researching his leagues, and third of all, he does a good chat. Uh, he's very thorough in the chat. He's not uh, the, the quickest with a quip or a quote, but he loves to break down players and really break down, the, especially the Appalachian League. So I'd really encourage you, if you're not a subscriber, you just get the podcast because it's free, check out Matt's uh, Appy League Top 20 and his chat, and that's really, a, I think, a great example of the kind of work that we do here and uh, why you also should, should subscribe uh, to Baseball America if you don't. So for Jim Callis from Chicago, I hope you uh, everyone was uh, patient with the uh, little hiccups uh, throughout the podcast here with Skype. I'm John Manuel. We'll be back with another podcast later this week on the League Top 20s. And keep checking us out at BaseballAmerica.com for more League Top 20s and chats. Uh, for Jim, I'm John. Until uh, next time, so long, everybody. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.